Hello, my name is Linnea Gibbs, and to, this morning we will be reading from 1 Peter, so if you'd like to follow along by reading along in your Bibles um, or by looking on the screens above, um, please join me as we read 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into spiritual houses to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them to fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God. Wow, our scripture for today has a lot of Old Testament language in it, doesn't it? There's priesthood, sacrifices, talks about a temple, a precious cornerstone laid in Zion, and of course the concept of chosen people. I remember when I was younger, trying to read through the whole Bible, and you'd be surprised just how much of the Bible, um, just how much the Old Testament deals with sacrifice and priests, and it was a little hard to get through. After the first couple instructions of how to slaughter a lamb in Leviticus, it got to be a bit ridiculous. A priest had to first wash himself, then put on the right clothing. It had to be the right color. They had to put on a breastplate with 12 different stones, and all the 12 different stones had to be in the right order. After all of this, they had to light a certain type of incense on a certain time of day. They had to choose the right lamb or goat to slaughter, and it had to be just the right size. The right type of tool would have to be used to do it. The right parts of the animal would have to be burned. Some blood was sprinkled over there, some over here, And it just went on and on. And then, after the whole sequence was done, Leviticus had this knack where it would repeat the sequence, but just in a different word structure. Kind of like how Yoda talks. It was like, You shall sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the altar, and on the altar shall you the lamb of the blood sprinkle. I, it it just got to be a bit munch. Eventually, I came to the conclusion that if you've read one chapter about how to sacrifice a lamb, you've read them all. So I began to just kind of skim through those parts of the Bible so I could get to the good stuff. I wanted to get to First and Second Samuel, where you had uh, David and Goliath and all that really, all the fun stuff. Um, I wanted to get to the epic tales. And I kind of continued to have this view of the sacrificial rituals in the Old Testament up until... I took an Old Testament class with a man named Jim Breckner, who's a professor at North Park University. Jim somehow made every single class mind-blowing and engaging, even 
when the class was talking about the type of tapestry used in the temple, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. So what I hope for today is that I am able to share this love of the Old Testament with you, and hopefully I can bring some fresh breath and life into some of these Old Testament uh, scriptures. I'm sure I'm not the first person in this room to skim over some of the Old Testament. So in order to uh, get into our scripture for today, I'm going to cover some of the practices. So last week, Peter talked about the problem of evil. People in the Old Testament knew evil well. They could see death and destruction all around them. They were surrounded by warrior nations constantly vying for power. Every few months, a different kingdom was conquering one another and putting prisoners to death. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Every few months, a different kingdom was conquering one another and putting others to death in brutal ways. Disease and decay were all around them, and they were always at the mercy of nature. Drought and famine were a thing. They did not have a QFC that they could go to when they were hungry. To the people in the Old Testament, it was painfully obvious that all of humanity was caught in a storm. Now, today it can be harder for us to realize that we're caught up in the same storm. We have many comforts in the West that help fool us into thinking that we're okay and that the world is okay. But you only have need to spend a little time watching the news or reading articles online to figure out that this world is definitely caught up in a storm. Everything seems to be leading towards death and decay. Peter called this death's energy. The feeling and pervasiveness of death is all around us. There is disease, hurt, and pain, and broken relationships. When left to our own devices, we tend to rely on malice and deceit. Hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. We look out for our own interests. We are caught up in a storm, and we contribute to the storm. The world is not okay, and neither are we. I think deep down, we know that we are unworthy, and that is why we try and make up for it. We try to build for ourselves a reputation to convince ourselves and others that we're okay. I know when I was a youth, I tried to become more popular in school. And also, students try to get known by their peers. Students might try to get known by teachers or professors for their academic prowess. Businessmen and women want to be known as savvy. And I, personally, would love nothing more than to hear people talking about how great of a preacher I am. We want to be known. We want to have a reputation. Why do we hunger and thirst for affirmation? Why are we so needy? Deep down, I believe that we all feel very unworthy. And it does not take much to unearth these feelings. Just one negative comment from someone, and suddenly our day can be ruined. And like that, we feel so unworthy. In contrast to our unworthiness is God's worthiness. God's ways are so much better than our ways. When we build things... Uh, and they start to break down. We put them in a landfill. It takes hundreds of years for these products to break down, and then it pollutes the environment, and we end up 
we're kind of in a process of just hurting ourselves, which is kind of dumb if you think about it. Now contrast that to God's ways. When he builds a forest and the trees die, the dead trees just become nursery logs for other trees to grow in its place. If you think about what happened with Mount St. Helens when it blew its top, it just wrought complete devastation to everything around it. But within a few years, suddenly forests started to grow up in its place. God's ways are truly more magnificent than our ways. He is worthy. People in the Old Testament realized that God was so beyond them, so vast, so great beyond measure, and it was because of God's worthiness and their unworthiness that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was set up. When faced with our own unworthiness, there is a natural need to do something physical to make up for our deficits. In our modern-day world, this means building a reputation for ourselves, putting on titles and degrees to make ourselves feel like we're worthwhile. But in the ancient days, that meant sacrifice, to make up for their deficits the ancient people sacrificed. I believe we have this desire to do something physical to make up for our deficits because this points to a greater truth, that something had to be done to make amends for our deficits, for our iniquities. And this something decided from the very beginning of time was for God to send his own son to be sacrificed on the cross. And it is into this reality that God sets up the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament looks towards the cross as its fulfillment, and that is the reason why it was salvific. The sacrifices allowed a people that knew that something was wrong with their world and themselves an opportunity to approach a God they knew they were unworthy to approach and to seek guidance and forgiveness from this God. This is a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. After Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he put the Ten Commandments in the Ark. The people were warned that if they touched the Ark, they would die. This is because God's presence was in the Ark in a special way. Now, they knew that God was in heaven and that his presence was everywhere around the earth, but in a special way, God's presence was in the Ark. Eventually, God commanded King Solomon to build a temple and put the Ark of the Covenant in that temple. This is a picture of the temple that the Ark was put into. Because the Ark was in the temple, the temple became the place where all of the sacrifices took place. If anyone wanted to make a sacrifice, they had to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go to the temple. That means if they wanted to be forgiven of their sins... They had to go all the way to Jerusalem on foot. Sometimes they were only able to get there once a year, maybe once every three years. They had to do all of that just to be forgiven of their sins. And once they got to the temple, they had to either bring with them a lamb or pay money to purchase a lamb to be sacrificed. And they couldn't even do it themselves. They had to have priests do it for them. Priests had a special role in Israelite society. Not just anyone could be a priest. They had to descend from the line of Levi, one of Jacob's 12 sons. Priests had a lot of precise rules they had to follow about what to eat, how long to have their hair, what they wore, and how they cleaned themselves. And again, to us, 
All of these rituals seem ridiculously meticulous, but the reason behind these practices was the worthy factor. Because God was so far beyond them and they were so unworthy, care had to be taken at every step of the way. By being so detailed in the rituals, all of this showed how unapproachable God was. And by that, I mean that a human could never measure up to God. There's nothing a human could ever do to make them as holy, as wise, or as mighty as God. These rituals a priest followed allowed them to approach God. The priest was therefore a middleman between God and everyone else. If an Israelite wanted to thank God, ask for guidance, or confess their sins to God and ask for forgiveness, they had to go to a priest. Priests communicated God's will, taught people about God, and it was through a priest that people received forgiveness. And forgiveness was accomplished through sacrifice. Every morning and evening, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple for the sins of the people. On top of the morning and the evening sacrifice, the Israelites had certain festivals where special sacrifices were made. Not atoning for just a few sins, but wiping out all of the Israelites' sins. The two most important of these were Passover and Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. In Passover, the Jews remembered the last plague of Egypt, when Moses told the Pharaoh that all of the firstborn sons of the people would surely die unless they put lamb's blood on their doorposts. When the angel of death came to Egypt, the houses that had been covered by lamb's blood were passed over. The focus of the Passover was the Passover lamb. On Passover, they would remember that it was the lamb's blood that saved them from the angel of death. So on Passover, families would bring a lamb they had or purchase a lamb at the temple to have it sacrificed. A family would enter the temple, they would offer prayer, and then the animal would be slaughtered in a special part of the temple. The lamb's blood would be sprinkled on the altar, their fat would be burned, and the meat would then be eaten by the family and the priest together as a feast. It was in the sprinkling of the blood of the lamb on the altar and it eating of its bodies, that the families were forgiven from their sins. On the Day of Atonement, only the high priest was deemed worthy enough to take part in the sacrificial rituals. It was a grueling day. This one man had to first wash himself to symbolically wash away his sin. Then he had to dress in fine linen and rush all around the temple, going from place to place, lighting this incense, washing himself again, changing his clothes three different times. And on the Day of Atonement, this one high priest had to slaughter a total of about 15 different animals. Can you imagine how long that would take and how stressful that would be and how hard it would be on the high priest's body? It must have been truly exhausting. We're going to just focus on two of the sacrifices that the high priest did on the Day of Atonement. If you look at the slide, you can see again a picture of the temple, but this time it's a close-up of the part where the sacrifices took place. Now we're going to look at a blueprint of the building. As you can see, the temple is divided into two courtyards. 
the bottom courtyard, the one that's cross-shaped, was where all the outcasts of society were able to go to. But they weren't able to go to the second court, the one on top, because you had to be the right type of person. They weren't worthy enough. Now, this is a close-up of the second courtyard. As you see, that little purple box up there, surrounded by all those walls, is the Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And this was then covered by a thick curtain that only the high priest could enter one day a year. The further you got from the Holy of Holies, the less worthy you were. That's why the outcasts were in the first courtyard. In the second courtyard, as you see on the bottom, well, you can't really see it, but I'll tell you what it says. On the bottom, it's in blue, and it says the court of the Israelites. If you were an Israelite male, you could step up there and you could watch the sacrifices taking place. As I said, on a normal day, the priests would slaughter a lamb or goat. They would take it from the slaughterhouses on the right, and then they would go to the altar on the left to slaughter the animal. But on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was only allowed to sacrifice. In addition to all the other sacrifices the high priest was doing on the Day of Atonement, at a certain point of the day, he would enter the Holy of Holies. He would go through into that little uh, building. As you see here, this is the high priest entering the Holy of Holies, only entered one day out of the entire year. And this was where the Ark of the Covenant was. The huge, heavy, thick curtain symbolized people's separation from God and their inability to access him. Inside the Holy of Holies, the high priest would then light incense and burning coals, and then he would exit to go slaughter a young goat for the Lord. This goat was supposed to be perfect without blemish, so that its innocent blood could forgive Israel of their sins. He would gather the blood of the goat in a bowl and then bring it to the Holy of Holies. He would then sprinkle this blood before the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. It was called, it was called the mercy seat because it was there that God forgave Israel. And it was in the sprinkling of the innocent blood that Israel's sins could be forgiven. After he did that, the same high priest would take another goat without blemish, called the scapegoat, and he would place his hands on the go- he would place his hands on the head of the goat like this, and he would speak to the goat. And in speaking to this goat, he would place all of Israel's sins on the goat. He would then take the goat and lead the goat out into the wilderness. And after the goat was wandering in the wilderness for a while, the priest would then throw him off a cliff. And what this symbolized was that all of Israel's sins was taken onto the scapegoat, led out to the wilderness, and it was thrown off a cliff because the goat was never to return. This meant on the Day of Atonement, when Israel was forgiven of their sins, their sins never came back to them. They were taken from them. The significance of this is that the young goat was seen to be perfect, without blemish. It was seen to be innocent. And so that which had no sin became sin 
for the community of the Israelites. As you see, under the old temple system of Israel, the acts of confession, forgiveness, and atonement all happened in the building of the temple through physical sacrifice with a middleman, a priest. When Jesus came and walked amongst his disciples, they could see that he was fulfilling so many Old Testament prophecies. But perhaps none of them were expecting that he was going to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. All of the hundreds of sacrifices that took place every day, especially on Passover and the Day of Atonement, were looking forward towards Christ's Passion Week. Last week, we celebrated Good Friday and Easter Sunday. These two days, along with Monday Thursday, celebrate Christ's Passion, the Last Supper, his death, and his resurrection. When Christ died on the cross, he was the ultimate and final Passover lamb. Everything that was foreshadowed in Passover was fulfilled in Christ once and for all. When his disciples gathered for the Last Supper, they were celebrating a Passover feast. Remember, on Passover, the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the altar and its body was eaten by the Israelites, symbolizing the forgiveness of their sins. When Jesus' disciples heard him say, This is my body, broken for you, and this is my blood, shed for you, they must have been stunned to hear what Jesus was claiming. That night, he was taken into custody, and the next day, he was killed. Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, was slain in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. Surely, when it all take place, when it all took place, some made this connection. Perhaps Old Testament passages echoed in their heads, like Jeremiah eleven nineteen and Isaiah fifty three seven, who foretold of the one who would be brought like a lamb led to slaughter, and whose suffering and sacrifice would redeem Israel. This is no doubt why John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was not only the Passover lamb, but he was also the sacrificial goat whose blood was sprinkled before the ark and the scapegoat who was led out in the wilderness to die. Consider 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Once Jesus took our sins as a scapegoat, he put it to death on the cross. Hear the words of Mark 15, 33 through 38. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. He said, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw 
how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Jesus was both the high priest and the young goat of the day of atonement. He offered himself willingly into Pilate's hands, saying in the garden, not mine, but your will be done. He let himself be captured by the Romans, and then he offered himself up as this perfect sacrifice. And it says in Hebrews that he, when he died, his blood was sprinkled on heaven's mercy seat. When Jesus died, his blood poured out on the mercy seat, took away all our sins once and for all. And this is why the temple curtain in the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom and the temple was broken. Suddenly people had direct access to God. The all-knowing, the all-powerful God beyond comprehension was now intimately close as well. This act tore the curtain that separated priests from people and God from humanity. The need for the building of the temple and for the role of the priest and for the sacrificial system all ended on the night that Christ died, where people before sacrificed lambs for their sins as they remembered how in Egypt they smeared lamb's blood on the wooden doorposts. Now the lamb of God, Christ's blood, was smeared on the wood of the cross. The temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices all take on complete new meaning now that Jesus had died and risen again. Jesus fulfilled these practices, and in turn, he sets up a new paradigm. It is the body of Christ, the church, that is the new temple of God. Now all who make Jesus the cornerstone of their faith are his priests, whose job it is to bring God's message of love to the ends of the earth. Our scripture reading for today says, To those who miss what happened in Jesus' death, the person of Jesus becomes a stumbling stone. To those who think that the sacrificial system was a good in and of itself, to those people, Christ becomes a stumbling stone stone. The act of the, the sacrificial system was not a good in of itself. Rather, it was the fact that it pointed towards Jesus's ultimate sacrifice. It is not about works. It is about the person of Jesus Christ. And to those who put faith in works, the person of Jesus is a stumbling stone. Consider verses six through eight of our scripture reading for today. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. Now, let's look at verses 4 through five. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The new temple is the church. All who believe in Jesus are being built into the temple of God a spiritual house for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. 
For in scripture it says, where two or more are gathered, God is there. God now resides within us, his chosen people. The church is the new Israel. No longer are we a people of God because of our blood, but we come into this inheritance by believing in him. Now look at verses 9 through 10 of our reading. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is because of Jesus' blood and sacrifice that we become God's people. Only through him do we become worthy to be his priests. And what is our role as priests? To declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The priests of the Old Testament represented God to the people of Israel and to the Gentiles, offering guidance, forgiveness of sins, and parting of God's love. That's our job now. To be a part of God's priesthood means to be a conduit of his love, to be Christ to each other and to others. When I was a kid, I remember complaining about going to youth group. I didn't really have any friends in youth group except for my sister. Um, And also I thought the games we played were not that great. And then in addition to all of this, I didn't get much out of the lessons. So I remember going up to my dad and telling him all the reasons why I shouldn't go to youth group. It all boiled down to I was looking for a personally powerful experience and I was not receiving it. And to this, my dad replied, So you think youth group is all about you? He then went on to elaborate that I shouldn't go to youth group just to get spiritually fed. Rather, I should go to be a part of something. Maybe there was a peer who was struggling with something, and God might put it in my heart to share with this peer, and I might be able to offer up advice or prayer. He told me that church was a lot more than just going to get yourself fed spiritually. But we actually go to, ch- to church to help feed each other. We, along with the pastor, lead each other towards Christ. All members of the church, together, should be confessing their sins to one another, leading each other to repentance, helping each other interpret the Bible, supporting each other, making each other feel loved. And it is when we are like Christ to one another that the church can be Christ to others as well. This rocked my world. I was stunned. I really thought it was all about me and how I received spiritual guidance. My dad had caught me, so I just said, okay, I'll go. And I started going. And suddenly, youth group completely changed for me because I started to engage more, and I saw myself as a part of the group. For me, the culminating experience was at the Chick Conference. I went to Chick with about 15 people, from my church, most of them acquaintances. We didn't know each other that well. And when we, opened, when we entered the opening night session, we were suddenly surrounded by 6,000 other high school students. And there was something about the environment of Chick that somehow made us start talking to each other. To see so many peers worshiping God together did something powerful to our group. Suddenly, even though we came from different cliques in school, we were united through the blood of Christ. 
We are united through something so much more powerful than sports or clubs or the music we listen to. To be united to one another in the love of Jesus' blood is an amazing experience. We suddenly started to depend on one another, to ask each other spiritual questions, and to do our best to seek answers. We began to be priests to one another. One of the reasons why I love my job, why I love being a youth pastor, is that youth ministry allows for me to see youth being priests to one another. We will regularly have a time of questions after I do a lesson, and oftentimes when a student asks a question, another student will offer up their thoughts on the matter. So I don't even have to. And it's a beautiful thing when students are trying to see Christ together, when they're trying to lead each other towards Christ. And it's not just me trying to lead them towards Christ. I love it when the youth share prayer requests with one another and pray for each other. It's so cool to see kids being priests to one another and lead each other towards Christ. Priests in the Old Testament belonged to the temple. They were not an individual attending for their own salvation. Rather, they worshiped God by investing in their spiritual community, attracting people to come to the temple to experience God. Let us be priests to one another. Invest in small groups. In small groups, you have a chance to discuss tough questions and seek God together. You have a chance to confess sins to one another, to pray for each other. You have a chance to be a priest to one another and lead each other towards Christ. Participate in the community of the church. And when I say church, I mean the body of Christ, not just this physical building. The collection of God's people. The church is the new temple of God. It should be the place where mercy is encountered and salvation is offered. Be priests to one another and the world at large. Be a conduit of God's love and mercy to each other. Confess your sins and your struggles to one another. Pray for one another. Lead each other towards a deeper and more powerfully intimate relationship with Christ. Christ has given us the task of being his priests. So be a conduit of his love and mercy to everyone you meet so that they can encounter the worthy lamb who is slain and sits on heaven's mercy seat.